When you think of the book of Revelation, what comes to mind? I think for most people, it's fancy visions, apocalypse, supernatural beasts, maybe even the mark of the beast. Dr. Lauren Johns suggests something else. The book of Revelation is particularly, I would even say singularly, rich in its description of Jesus. There are more descriptors of Jesus in Revelation than any other book in the New Testament. Today's guest is Dr. Lauren Johns, retired New Testament professor and someone who is particularly passionate about the book of Revelation. Today, we will be discussing the Christology of Revelation. And hey, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review and share it with a friend. It helps us grow and helps spread the information that's being presented, okay? I'm just Posley, and let's get going. Dr. Johns, thank you so much for joining the show. I'm really excited for this conversation. Good to be here. So as I've been like researching Christology on my just for myself, I'm trying to learn more, um, especially since I'm in grad school, having a lot of access to good resources. And I, I stumbled across your work on Revelations, and you know I'm sure there are people like me who didn't read Revelations until they were an adult, or maybe didn't even have you know haven't even read Revelations yet. Um, so before we dive into the Christology that is in Revelations, can you share just a brief uh, like context of the book itself? Sure. Uh, Revelation was written probably near the end of the first century. This, of course, is debated, as many things are in New Testament studies, but uh, <laughs> probably in the 90s. Um, Irenaeus says that it was written near the end of uh, Domitian's reign, and a lot of scholars go with that and say there's no real reason to uh, think otherwise. Uh, and Domitian uh, was emperor at Rome and was assassinated in 96. So if he if it was written shortly before his death, the assassination, it was probably written in the early to mid-90s. And it was written according to chapter 1 from the uh, island of Patmos where John had been sent, John the author. We don't know who this John was, but... His name was John, and his audience knew him. Hmm. And it was written to the seven churches that are in Asia. Asia was a Roman province at the time, and the, all seven churches occur, uh, uh, appeared or were present in that um, province, which is located in what would be today Turkey. That is the westernmost hmm. part of Turkey near the sea. And uh, there were some other churches in that province as well. So it's interesting that John did not write to them. Maybe seven is a important number, and eight or nine would have messed it up. I don't know. But in any case, he wrote to the seven churches there. Hmm. At the time, uh, Rome was pretty clearly in control of, uh, very clearly in control of the whole Mediterranean basin. And um, at that particular time, emperor worship was also pretty strong, especially in Asia, according to Steve Friesen. Um, mm. Asia was almost a, uh, a leader, you could say, in emperor worship. 
the emperors themselves had to be pretty careful they, about how much they wanted or demanded worship because the emperors that demanded worship uh, had their memories damned upon their death. And that hmm. is a technical term. Uh, in, in Latin, uh, damnatio memoriae was um, something that the Senate voted on after uh, an emperor's death. And if this emperor was too much of a megalomaniac, or maybe you should just say maniac, uh, <laughs> they damned his memory. And what that yeah. what, what that meant was that workers had to go all around the Roman Empire and chisel out his name any place that it was located in the empire. Hmm. So if you happen to visit Ephesus today, for instance, you can walk down Curates Street, and they have an old lintel that used to be at the top of a door at one point that has Domitian's name chiseled out uh, on that lintel. Was, it's a great hmm. object lesson for people who know what was going on there. Domitian was one of those who was damned by the Senate after his death. Hmm. Other emperors, who, especially those who had done well and were sufficiently humble, uh, and that has to be in quotation marks because um, it's all relative, right? But if, if right. according to the Senate, you were sufficiently humble, then you would be divinized and declared a god upon your death. Uh, mm. So that even um, Vespasian, as he was dying, joked, uh, I think I'm becoming a god, which meant, I think I'm dying. <laughs> so anyway... Um, in the Roman elite in Rome, they all knew to kind of wink and nod when it came to emperor worship because they knew this emperor was not really a god, but uh, it had kind of become a, a cultural expectation that you start to, to use that kind of language, and it was a way of giving deference to the emperor. But... John, who was uh, very well-versed in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, did not take it lightly, and he very clearly did not think the people in these churches should take it lightly either. In fact, they should resist it and reject it. According to Steve Friesen, who, uh, whose work I think is really helpful, he, he wrote his dissertation on Ephesus, uh, after having studied about 5,000 inscriptions that still exist in stone in Ephesus, oh, wow. um, says that the, um, the competition for honor was, now this is not new, everybody knew this, but uh, the competition for honor among cities and provinces and so forth was pretty fierce in the Roman Empire. And one way to get honor was to give honor to the emperor. And so the, the province of Asia applied for, you actually had to apply for permission to start a system of worship for the emperor. And yeah. they applied yeah. for and got permission to have a second temple built for the emperor. And uh, that was likely dedicated near the end of the first century. Steve, I think, uh, dates it between... September of 89 and August of 90. 
was when it was dedicated. Mm -hmm. uh, and at this point, I'm going to speculate a bit, Justin, because I, you know, I don't know. There's no solid evidence for this, but I sure. think it's very likely, given what John actually wrote, that he spoke out against this uh, whole system of emperor worship and specifically against the temple, which was a, a great hmm. symbol of honor for Ephesus and was probably banished to Patmos as a result of that. Now, that's the part that's speculative. We don't know oh, okay. why he was banished sense. or even if he was banished because some people claim that he went there to preach uh, on his own, not because he was uh, sent there as punishment. But most scholars would say he was banished to Patmos. And um, I would like to suggest just speculatively that probably it was because of speaking out against the whole system of emperor worship, which, by the way, specifically benefited the elite uh, and wealthy families of Ephesus because you know what happens when you uh, build a, a, a temple to the emperor? People come. People mm. who come have to buy food in the restaurant. They have to stay at the local inn and so forth. So it brought uh, some clear economic benefit to Ephesus. Yeah. And these leading families were the ones who especially benefited from that. So anyway, that's... Uh, I, I see John as a very committed believer in God who uh, whose scriptures were important to him. Um, it's interesting that some scholars of Revelation claim that um, one-third of the verses in Revelation have some allusion to the Old Testament, and yet there's hardly one direct quote. So I'm guessing that this John probably was banished to Patmos without scriptures, but he knew them hmm. well enough that he could refer to them uh, in general terms. So uh, for a long time, as I did my own research in Revelation, it really bothered me that there were two theses about the social situation of these seven churches that didn't fit together, and I thought they were incompatible. The one thesis was, that these churches were were wealthy or or at least comfortable let's put it that way that's better than wealthy not wealthy but comfortable yeah. and um doing just fine in society they were not pressured there were there were no crisis whatsoever they were just there you know things were fine and that john wrote to shake them up the other thesis is that they were uh, being pressured by society and even persecuted to some degree, and John wrote to comfort them. Well, how do you how do you make those compatible? And I finally decided that you know what that can happen at the same time, depending on the church, and even hmm. the people in the church. There were some people who were quite comfortable, and John would say too comfortable, and they need to wake up and see what, what the Spirit is saying to the churches through the mouth of Christ, um, while others actually were saying no to the pressures of society and the pressure of worshiping the emperor, and some were being persecuted. We even have the name of somebody who had been killed for their faith. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, 
it's not all one or the other. I think it really is a mix. Does that okay. help for the context? No, I'm sure. I mean, it's helpful to me because I've never studied the book of Revelation. And I'm sure listeners, that's the majority of the listeners, if we're going to be honest. Uh, it is a, a fringe book for most yeah. common believers, I think. Um, so what I, I really liked uh, your chapter or article um, that you, and I, I'm going to uh, link it in the show notes below too for anyone who's interested. But you assert um, that which is being revealed in the book of Revelation is Jesus. And you even in your introduction, you even say like most people think it's about the apocalypse, the end of the world, the end times. But you, you clearly and explicitly uh, state that this book is about Jesus. Uh-huh. Um, so could you share some ways he is revealed and what are some of the descriptions just generally and like int- introduce the the listeners to uh, the Jesus of revelations. Revelation singular. There's no revelations. In no revelation. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, well, um, I would say that the book of revelation is particularly, I would even say singularly rich in its description of Jesus. There are more descriptors of Jesus in Revelation than any other book in the New Testament. Just if you're talking about descriptions, um, he there's lots of uh, participial phrases, uh, and that that be a reference to uh, the one who uh, holds the stars in his hand, or the one who does this, or the one who does that. There's uh, there's probably ten times as many of those kinds of descriptions of Jesus as any other book. Um, mm. Uh, many, not, but not all, of that standard titles of Jesus, like Jesus, Christ, uh, or Messiah. Uh, Son of God is um, used a uh, couple times. Uh, Son of Man is used twice, as I recall. Uh, so there are some of, of those descriptors. There's others that are not used of Jesus, but really there's a lot of descriptors of Jesus. However, Having said that, there's one that is um, not only central to the book, but I would say introduced in a very dramatic fashion, and that is Jesus as Lamb. Now, we mm-hmm. have uh, Jesus called Lamb in other books of the New Testament, but they actually use a different word for Jesus than the one in Revelation. The Greek word in Revelation is arneon. And the, and the Greek word for lamb appears in 1 Peter um, and in 1 Corinthians uh, is usually amnos, although in 1 Corinthians it's uh, pascha, which means Passover victim. Um, so hmm. our neon is a little is, is unique in the New Testament of Jesus. It's the only book that uses that word. And how does that appear in the New Testament? Well, it's not a common word in the New Testament. It only occurs, uh, I forget, um, half a dozen times or so. And it's always metaphorical. It never Mm. refers to an actual lamb in the Old Testament. And uh, in most or all of the cases, it's used in a context of vulnerability. Like lambs are not powerful or scary beasts. They're actually vulnerable animals. And so it's interesting to me that Revelation uses that word that speaks of 
vulnerability, maybe even weakness, although the lamb in Revelation is anything but weak. Uh, it's a victorious lamb that you should be afraid of if you're not on, on his side, but mm. um, it's, it's a vulnerable lamb. Now, the interesting thing is, even though that word lamb is used of Jesus uh, 28 times in the book of Revelation, okay. it's not used at all until chapter 5. And instead, what we have is all those other kinds of, uh, we have son of God, we have son of man, we have um, the one who holds the stars, we have lots of those participial phrases that describe something about who he is or what he's doing or something like that. Uh, most, the majority of those other descriptors occur before Jesus is introduced as lamb. But when he mm -hmm. is introduced as lamb, it, it happens in a very dramatic and surprising, I would say shocking um, scene. And that is, uh, that is uh, in, in chapter 5, uh, John is shown the lamb of the tribe of Judah, the uh, lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, and, or he hears actually, uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah is announced to him, and then he sees a lamb. There's hmm. a debate among scholars as to whether the hearing and the seeing are significant, and I know some scholars who really think that it is. What he hears is one thing. What he sees is the same thing, but different in a way that should take us by surprise and make us pay attention. And certainly the switcheroo in chapter five is a big one because a lion is not like a lamb. These are two different mm -hmm. symbols that symbolize different things. And I think... Um, the whole point of that very surprising revelation, I also think, by the way, that chapter 5 is the rhetorical center of revelation because the whole center of revelation is, number one, Jesus. Jesus is the center. And the, and the center of his introduction is his introduction as lamb. Now, this the lamb and lion is not juxtaposed in the sense that the lion continues also as another descriptor for Jesus in the rest of the book. It's not. The lion uh, never makes another appearance as Christ, or I should say Christ as lion never makes another appearance, but rather Jesus is lamb the way through. Now, hmm. Justin, tell me, why would John have introduced Jesus as a lamb in this book? What kind of what kind of message is he trying to give his readers by portraying Jesus as lamb? Well, I think there's an answer to that, and it has to do with following certain other clues in the book that I think actually do fit together pretty well. And those clues are that, uh, number one, John wants his audience to worship God alone, and that includes Jesus. So it's not like instead of Jesus or along with Jesus, it's Jesus slash God is the proper object of their worship. Hmm. What that means is 
that worshiping the emperor is not proper. He never actually goes there in so many words saying, don't worship the emperor. But, but in other words, he really does go there. I mean, he says, worship God alone, not the emperor. Mm -hmm. So he is very much involved and in, in speaking to his contemporary challenges in Asia uh, at that time. And he wants those seven churches to know what's at stake here. Hmm. So, um, but why lamb? Why lamb? I think John knows that it could be trouble for his seven churches if they do what he hmm. says. They could very well be persecuted and even martyred. Um, Jesus is portrayed as the faithful witness. Well, who is a witness? In this context, we're really not talking about going door to door and, and introducing Jesus to people. A witness was somebody who was hauled in by the governor and had to answer for themselves. Now, we have a little bit of context for that. It's, um, it's roundabout, it's somewhat circumstantial, but I think it's still worthwhile to mention that in 112 AD, uh, Pliny the Younger, who was the uh, governor of Pontus and Bithynia, just to the north, it's right next door to Asia, wrote a letter to Emperor Trajan uh, saying, what should I do with these Christians? I don't quite know how to handle them. And he said, you know, somebody put up a sign naming about 20 Christians. And he felt like, well, you know, they have to be investigated. So he hauled them in. And um, he said he found out that Christians are reluctant to do two things. One is they're reluctant to worship the emperor. And they're also reluctant to curse Christ. So he gave them those two tests. I want you to, he brought in a bust of the emperor. I want you to do obeisance to the emperor. And, um, and then I also want you to curse Christ, whoever he is. Um, mm -hmm. Well, if they did that, he figured that, no, they must not be Christians and he let them go. Mm -hmm. If they refused to do that, then he figured they probably really are Christians and he executed them. Unless, of course, they were Roman citizens. Of course, those had to be sent to Rome for trial because the governor could not execute a, Ro a Roman citizen. But he, he felt a little bit uneasy about this because he was just kind of flying by the seat of his pants. And he wrote to the emperor to say, look, am I doing this okay? Is this what I should be doing? And fortunately, we have Trajan's response to him saying, basically, yeah, you are doing well. This is good. We don't. We don't. We don't believe in executing people just because somebody's turned in. But um, sure, uh, if it turns out they're really a Christian, we all know that they're despicable and they should be put to death. So, yeah, <laughs> you're doing good. Well, that's 112, and that's in Pontus and Bithynia. And we think probably Revelation was written about 17 to 20 years earlier in the next mm -hmm. province. But I think it's reasonable, along with many other scholars, to think that we probably have a somewhat reliable window on what life was like for the people in those seven churches at the time. 
So if that's the case, they could expect some trouble and uh, possibly even be executed for saying no to emperor worship. And if that's the case, then it's important to show Jesus actually was a martyr himself. Now, I once went to the Society of Biblical Literature and had a passion, heard a passionate speech by somebody who said, it's improper to, to treat or understand Jesus as a martyr himself. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I thought, well, that's interesting, uh, but he's wrong when it comes to Revelation. Revelation might be the exception here because I really do think that the author wants us to understand Jesus as a martyr, the prototypical martyr, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, Alive, he was alive and uh, is alive, firstborn of the dead, which means that others will be coming after him. Hmm. And he is the prime example of somebody who died as a result of his own faithful witness. And now you, my brothers and sisters in the seven churches, are being asked to do the same. Follow in his steps. Offer the same faithful witness, consistent resistance to mm. these forces in society and uh you might be killed for it that it, it may happen but uh if you are you can look forward to the resurrection because this is the right thing to do now i use that phrase consistent resistance and that is a, a phrase that elizabeth schuster fiorenza offered as a translation for the greek word hupomene which is usually translated um, endurance. Hmm. But endurance sounds so passive and not quite yeah. apt for the context of these seven churches. Uh, what John is really proposing is that they offer consistent, nonviolent resistance to the pressures hmm. to worship the emperor. And if they do so, they may actually end up following in Jesus' steps by giving up their lives like he did. Got it. So that's why I maintain, I maintain that in that article, Justin, that, that the Christology of Revelation, how, how Revelation views Christ, is very closely related to the ethics of Revelation. That is, how the people should live because it's a very short step between understanding Jesus as the prototypical faithful witness who was martyred for his faithful witness and the believer's own faithful witness and potentially being martyred uh, for it. So uh, Christology and ethics are very closely connected in Revelation. dropped a bomb on me then so can we talk about that a little bit more of how yeah. ethics and christology are linked because i mean i think I, I i get 
what you're saying, but can can you flesh that out a little bit? Well, I I think um, Revelation was uh, meant to uh, offer a relevant and meaningful word, a message for the believers in the seven churches. And it's something that we can benefit because that's the way we do with all of Scripture. And 1 Corinthians was written to the believers in Corinth uh, uh, in, the, in the 50s AD. But we read it as Scripture because we think God has a message for us by means of this ancient writing to the Corinthians, right? Mm-hmm. I say Revelation works the same way. Some people want to bypass that and say, oh, no, Revelation was written for the end times, right? It's written for us because we're living in the end times. Well, mm-hmm. that actually ignores what the book itself says. I'm just suggesting that we read Revelation literally when it comes to understanding who the audience was. The seven churches mm-hmm. that are in Asia in the first century. That doesn't mean we can't benefit from it or that God doesn't have something important to say to us through that um, through that book. I actually think it's a very relevant book for today, but not because it has uh, predictions of our own day. I don't I don't mm-hmm. think that's true. Um, so hopefully it's not too big of a leap, Justin, to think of the idea of it having a relevant ethical message for those seven churches. Hmm. And if so, if it does, then whatever we can learn about the social context of those seven churches might help us, might throw some light on what we actually read in the book of Revelation. So, uh, connection of Christology and ethics. I really think it's no accident. I think this is a very carefully planned book that... um, uh, is meant to reveal what life is really like and how it works. I, I recently, after I wrote that chapter, I read a book by Ted Grimsrud. I forget the title now. Uh, just came out a year or two ago, um, in which he he um, argues that there is very little, if any, prediction, actual prediction in the book of Revelation. What it is, instead of a prediction, is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And it was, it was it's a revelation that is designed to um, speak to the actual lived experience of the seven churches. And um, so, like all the, you know, I was going to say blood and guts, but you know, there's a lot of blood in Revelation. Um, and... Yeah. Um, one of the points he makes that I want to do some more research on is that never do we find any blood in Revelation that belongs to the enemies of Christ. It's huh. not It's not God punishing the enemies of Christ. Rather, it's a revelation of how violence works in the world. And that's a different way of thinking about Revelation. It was even different for me because... Uh, like I said, this is that's not a typical argument uh, by Revelation scholars, and I want to spend some more time with it to see if it yeah. holds up. But um, but it actually fits 
with some things that, that have bothered me. It actually explains some things that have bothered me over the years because there's a lot of violence in Revelation. Uh, the idea that none of it is, quote, divine or good violence is, um, is new to me. Hmm. And uh, so I want to I think about that further. Well, I, I appreciate that you're showing how biblical scholarship isn't just black and white, that, you know, either you have all the answers or you don't, because I think a lot of people who are joining this journey with me probably do think like that. I know I did until I went to grad school, as I thought, either you're in or you're out. <laughs> yeah, there there's a lot of things we don't understand, and uh, sometimes we admit it and sometimes we don't. Yep, Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you kind of answered my next question a little bit, but I'm curious if you had any more to, to offer. So in, in the chapter, you write Jewish and or Christian prophetic denunciation of the emperor cult forms an important part of the historical context for Revelation and informs Revelation's Christology itself. And so, and this was under the title of what you called anti-imperial Christology. Now, I, you were saying that that's just for the context of uh, the seven churches that you know the letter was written to the book of Revelation singular. I caught myself this time, um, but how how do we apply that? Like, is there such thing as a like a modern anti-imperial Christology, or and how are modern readers supposed to be reading this? Well, wow, that's that's uh, that's a big one, Justin. <laughs> and um, let me just, uh, boy, I should have gotten that um, that book handy by Ted Grimsrud because he actually speaks in that a number of places in his book, how, how Revelation speaks to uh, the American context because the American oh, wow. empire is the biggest empire in the world today. And so he thinks that um, Revelation is relevant in some in some chilling ways, actually, uh, hmm. to um, what's going on in the world today with America taking the position of Rome in, in the first century. So, oh, um, so he's suggesting we need to be a little careful about whether the anti-imperial Christology that's going on in Revelation might also have something to say about resisting certain kinds of nationalistic um, rhetoric in the U.S. Hmm. Uh, I think he's probably right about that, although, honestly, that's going to be controversial. It's, it's getting into political issues that some people want mm -hmm. to stay away from. Um, yeah, I, 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 it would be interesting to... Um, I think, Justin, both you and I would love to interview uh, John about what he wrote. and <laughs> Let's schedule it. Let's do it, yeah. And I think we could ask him some interesting questions about how, if he knew what our context were, you know, is today, what would he say differently or would it hmm. be fairly similar? And I'm guessing it might be fairly similar. That's a, uh, that's a fascinating idea of, of the connection between Rome and America. And I, I, I agree that, I mean, there are, 
uh, you know, Christian nationalist, then that's like a thriving uh, theology or at least ideology. And so it's just very interesting that uh, what, what's that author's name, by the way? I want to write it down so I can put it in the show notes. Uh, Ted Grimsrud. Ted. G-R-I-M-S-R-U-D. Uh, um, R-U-D. It's R-U-D. actually, the title R-U-D. is To Follow the Lamb. To Follow the Lamb. A Peaceable Reading of the Book of Revelation. And it just came out uh, in 2022, I think. I recommend it. Yeah, that, that I, I'm gonna get it because that, that's an interesting idea. Because um, I, I got the the lamb Christology really moved me, and especially listening to you right now of of that tension between like uh, Jesus as lamb is vulnerable, but also victorious. And I think that's that's, that's an interesting and humbling um, idea. And I also appreciate your definition of witness because I do think at least the younger generations are are convinced that witness means you know posting on facebook that you're reading your bible yeah uh but yours you offered such a more uh in more or deeper i guess deeper definition of what it means yeah yeah when you're called let's say it a little more dramatically when you're dragged before the governor of the province you're expected to bear witness and uh, Mm. what are you going to say and it's not it's it's a totally different thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and so uh, to wrap us up, because I, uh, I think this last question. Oh no, never mind. The last question was all about Lamb Christology. <laughs> yeah, well, I really do think I really do think the Lamb Christology is the center of the book, uh, and a lot of uh, commentators on Revelation sort of dismiss it as a metaphor. Well, he died, you know, on the cross, and then he rose again, and so we have the lamb in Revelation. Mm. I want to know, why lamb? Why lamb? What is that specifically? Because there were lots of descriptors, like I said, and in my dissertation on Revelation, I had a whole appendix listing all of the descriptors of Jesus in Revelation. Mm. And um, it's pretty clearly that Lamb is the big one. Uh, Son of man occurs just twice. Lamb, 28. Son of God, I forget. I I have to go back and check. Uh, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, uh, lots of other descriptors, but lamb is the big one and Hmm. is introduced in such a dramatic way that, that I think it is the, either the fulcrum or the rhetorical center of revelation and it, it really has to be understood. To understand Revelation, you have to understand the, the Lamb Christology. That's mm. central to the book. And I think the work that it's doing is offering the, the center of our faith. Jesus is the center of our faith, right? Is, is asking the, the readers to consider him specifically in the role of Lamb because he was vulnerable and yet victorious. And we are also to be vulnerable and yet victorious in the same way. So I think that's the very center of the book. Mm. Mm. Well, what a, that's a, a great way to, to end the, the interview. I do appreciate your time, um, Dr. Johns, and I do appreciate your work and this wonderful idea of Lamb Christology. 
Well, thank you. It's, it's enjoy, enjoyable to talk about this because I'm passionate about it. You've just listened to another episode of Young and Sanctified. You can support us by continuing to listen, sharing an episode with a friend, or leaving a review. Find us on Instagram or Facebook. And if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can reach out to Justin personally through his email, which you can find in the show notes. Your feedback helps us grow as a podcast. Until next time, friends.